and as you listen, understand that the teachings are really for your own reflection. Um, you don't have to remember anything at all, no quiz at the end. Um, rather, it is at best a reminder of something that you already know. So I'm just back from traveling around for the last couple of weeks in Denver and Seattle and Los Angeles and mostly sort of the western half of the country doing teachings and uh, workshops on based on the, this new book on Buddhist psychology that I um, uh, that came out in the spring a couple of months ago, um, and I'm a little bit tired. And I was kind of thinking, okay, what am I going to do tonight? I was talking to my daughter. I said, you know, I'm really a little tired from traveling around, and I, I'm not sure that I can think so so clearly. And she said, 24 years, Dad, you'll figure it out. You know, <laughs> something else. Okay. So, if it feels sort of loose tonight, so be it. That's the way it is. Oh, it's so nice to hear all the kids running around. It's, it's like sp- spring sounds. Sweet. And what I'd like to speak about tonight, um, in a loose way, is, uh, is the theme of sanctuary. When uh, the Buddha was about to... Um, and his life uh, lay down between the two sal trees that automatically and immediately filled with blossoms, and he was lying there surrounded by monks and nuns and lay people and so forth. Almost the last words that he said to those who were around him were, Make of yourself a light. Be a lamp unto yourself. Let your own illumination, the illumination of your own wisdom, shine. So, in some way, the question for tonight is, um, what supports this illumination in ourselves? A friend of mine who is a poet, uh, who lived in San Geronimo Valley for a while, Lynn Park, um, puts it this way. Oh, I should say one more thing about her. She had uh, brittle bone disease, so that when she was a child, she broke her bones 15 or 20 times every time she fell trying to ride a bike or something. Her bones would break. So this is her poem. She writes, Take the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. The stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Remember, your garden can never be taken from you. So it's really a kind of an invitation or a reminder again. 
take the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden. Finding our way into the garden, into the sanctuary, is uh, central to all kinds of spiritual practice, and certainly very much so in, in the Buddhist tradition. It was interesting, I was in Palestine and uh, Israel earlier this year, working with and visiting with various peace groups and groups that were bridging between the Israeli and Palestinian communities in, in quite amazing ways, the bereaved mothers groups, the former combatants for peace, the women who plant olive trees and replant the olive groves, the Arab and Israeli women, Palestinian and Israeli women who do this together, and the Gandhian center. Um, and uh, now I'm trying to remember. Um, one of the one of the most beautiful things that I saw, we were on the Mount of Olives and had led a peace uh, a peace walk across uh, the city of Jerusalem and around the old old city and through it to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was um, folks from all different parts of Israel. Um, and we had a little circle at the end where people, could speak to one another, kind of heart-sharing circles. And one of the uh, women who was in our circle, who was an older Palestinian woman, said, you know, when I grew up, I grew up right over there. She pointed to where she had grown up. And she said, there used to be olive groves all over there. They've been cut down now. But I used to play, and I played with everyone. I played with the Druze children, and I played with the Christians, and I played with the, the Jewish children and the Israeli and Palestinians, we all mixed together. And she said, the only thing that I wish, and we were planting again an olive tree, is that as this olive tree matures and it grows, that it becomes the garden that my grandchildren and great-grandchildren can play together as we did before. So what does it mean to make a garden or to find a garden? Speaking with a, a woman who was trying to teach Um, mindfulness meditation in the Palestinian community. She said, when I come in and I talk about silence, it doesn't work very well in the Arabic culture. She said, because um, it feels like it's disconnected or foreign in some way. She said, but if I talk about the silence of the desert, then everyone goes, oh yes, I know what you mean. She said, or if I talk about turning inward and listening in a meditative way. She said, the language doesn't quite work in, in my Arabic culture. But she said, if I talk about the walled garden, that you're going for days and traveling across the desert and finally you come to this oasis and there's a, there's a beautiful temple or a mosque there and then you go inside and inside there's a fountain, you know, and a couple of palm trees in this beautiful walled garden like that poem speaks of. She said, when I mention the walled garden, then everyone says, oh yes, how do I find that walled garden? And so this becomes, in some way, a question for each of us, and very much so in the complexity and speed and busyness of these times.
Thomas Merton um, puts it this way. He says, To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, even to try to help everyone in everything, is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. How's that? You understand, don't you? So what does it mean to find a sanctuary? And what are the forms of sanctuary? Just being in Denver um, yesterday or the day before, I was working with a group of, and in L.A., with hundreds of primarily health professionals and people who were working with returning veterans and working in the fields of addiction, working with those who are homeless, working in juvenile hall, and therapists who work with the kind of normal suffering of the world, not particular to those groups, and then everybody who carries the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and the continuing environmental problems that touch all of our lives and hearts and the continuing racism and bigotry in the world. How do we find a way through this so that something beautiful comes from our lives and from uh, our practice? And one of the stories that I started this uh, teaching for um, a Buddhist psychology for therapists and um, health professionals was a story of a woman who works as a psychologist for the United Nations. Um, and her specialty is to work with people who have been tortured. So that when she um, came to a retreat and she started to sit in meditation, one of the problems was that as she closed her eyes, all these memories would come back of the things that people had told her in the images. And part of the problem is that these are people from Haiti and Guatemala and El Salvador and Argentina and Iraq and Afghanistan and Indonesia and Burma and Sierra Leone and USA, um, that the majority of countries in the world still are places where people are tortured. I mean, it's really hard even to say it. So, um, we did a, a series of practices where she released the trauma that she carried in her body, physically released it, and in using energy and imagery, released it down into the earth, various ways of helping her let that go, holding what was left, the suffering with compassion, um, and after we'd worked with it for a while to sort of clear out, I said, well, would you tell me something? I said, tell me a little bit about your office. Where do you sit? And what's the room like? She said, well, you know, it's an office, a rectangle. I sit here. And I, I said, okay, um, I'd like to make a suggestion. This is a bit more practical. Um, but where you sit as people come in and they see you, I'd like to suggest that you put a great big shelf behind you on the wall. And on it, put a Buddha and Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion and mercy, and Mother Mary and Guadalupe, you know, and St. Francis, you know, and maybe some of the Haitian gods and a page from the Quran about the mercy of Allah and the star of David and 
you know, Durga and Vishnu and probably Kali as well while we're at it, you know, (laughs) and any other gods you've ever heard of because you need backup. (laughs) Because what's true is that you're not supposed to carry the sorrows of the world individually through, and not supposed to run them through your own body and nervous system. It's not the right thing. Um, no one should have to carry that kind of tor- those torture images. So that when people come into the room and they see you sitting there, they're not only going to see you, but they're going to see who's behind you, you know, which is really important. Um, and I said, when you begin your work, in the day, in the morning, maybe you light a little candle or put a, you know, a piece of fruit there and say, okay, you know, do your job. This is, this is your work, Mother Mary and Kuan Yin and whoever. Please help carry this. And then when the day is over, turn around and make whatever form of gesture is true to you that allows you to leave that suffering, that measure of sorrows that has been presented to you in the lap of the gods so that you can leave it there and, and go home and sleep. Does this make sense to you all? And so it doesn't, I mean, you know, one of the things, the big problem with God, basically, is that it's not a plural word, you know, and then everybody fights about Yahweh or Allah or, you know, Krishna or whoever it happens to be. And it's all you need to do is add an S to it, and everything's fine. <laughs> Things are more complicated in the world than multi-layered and multifaceted. Um, but what the story points us to is that each of us, in some way, has to make our our place of work, or the place that we live, or the place that we meditate, however it happens to be, a sanctuary. Um, has to re-sacralize our life because our culture in many ways can be described as the absence of the sacred. And the notion of a sanctuary is a place that is not only connected with that which is timeless and sacred, but that also is not in the thrall of greed and hatred and aggression and prejudice and ignorance and delusion. It is a place where the heart is clear and free. And I remember um, when I was living in the forest monastery in Thailand with my teacher, Ajahn Chah, that I was visited um, at one point by some friends who were working for the volunteer service in Vietnam. Actually, they were working for the Quakers in Vietnam, doing peacework in some of the um, war-torn areas. And I'd met them because I was previous to being a monk, I was working in the Mekong River Valley on um, rural health and medical teams in the border of Thailand and Laos where there was some fighting going on. Um, And these friends came to see me and they were really disappointed by the monastery. They said, you know, here is this war going on not many miles away and at night in the monastery because this forest temple was not far from the border of Cambodia and Laos. At night, you could watch the bombers go overhead. And from some of the temples of this forest monastery, you could even see flashes of light on the horizon. And they'd say, there's this madness and, you know, this terrible war, and here you are sitting and walking and meditating like, you know, dodos or something like that. Don't you, don't you 
feel a responsibility to get out there and do something to stop the war. So they went to Ajahn Chah, my teacher, and they said, um, they asked the same question, and said, it's so important, and he said, yes, it's terribly important to stop the war, he, he said. In fact, he said, that's what we're doing here. And then he pointed to his chest, he said, which is the heart, understanding. He said, we human beings are at war with so many things. We're at war with what's right and wrong and too big and too long and too short and who's this way and that and how it's supposed to be. And this is the place where you learn to stop the war, to step out of the battle. They didn't understand it at first, but after being there for 10 days or so, and walking in these beautiful swept paths under the, tr- the great big teak trees of the forest, they began to realize that it was like a living library. It was a place that you could enter, and instead of a war zone where people are tearing down their temples to sell things because they're desperate to get money to eat or to survive, um, you could drop your wallet, your money, your gold watch, and someone would pick it up and bring it to the altar and say, did anyone lose this? You know, It was a place of tremendous virtue and generosity, um, there were the ants that would crawl across the path and everybody would step over the ants. It wasn't just the deer and the big animals, but there was a reverence for every form of life. And by the time that a week or ten days had finished, the bodies and hearts of these friends who visited were somehow imbued by the spirit of the temple. And they looked different. They looked easier and more peaceful in themselves. And they said, oh, okay, now I understand. Ajahn Shah said, yes, from where I sit, from this place, there are wars that come and go at times. There is the insanity of humanity that will come and go and rise and fall. And it's not that we don't want to tend to it. We need to. But we also need sanctuaries of peace that remind people that there is another way of being on this earth. The outer sanctuaries become the reflection or the mirror of how we can live in inwardly in the garden of the heart. And we all know this. You know, when you go to the great cathedrals of Chartres or you go to Pua Honua Ohonau now, the city of refuge and the temple of refuge in the big island of Hawaii, south of Kona, or when you go to, you know, the old Mayan temples, or you go to Burma, sacred places worldwide have the quality of reminding us that there is a timeless dimension to life, a dimension of connectedness that we lose as we run around and try to kind of fulfill all the things that are in our BlackBerry for that day or whatever our particular, you know, tasks are on our to-do list. This is from uh, Hafiz. He writes, The mind is ever a tourist wanting to touch and buy new things, then toss them into an already filled closet. (laughs) And so it's easy to get caught up, and we all do. And when we come, whether it's to an evening of meditation or to go and take a walk by the ocean and Point Reyes or walk in the mountains, 
we take time to reconnect with ourselves. We take time to reconnect with our true self, with what's called the, who, the, the spirit, who you were before your parents were born. That's the Zen phrase of it. And there is around us always this vast silence that we long for and that we lose touch with. And to come into a sanctuary is just to be reminded, oh yeah, here we are again in this mystery, these human bodies, this incarnation that we're born into. What really matters? And of course what matters is pretty simple. In the end, when you sit with somebody at the end of their life, there aren't very many questions that they ask. Did I love well? Main question. Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I really live in a free way? And maybe did I learn to let go? Because if you don't learn earlier, then at the end you have what's called a crash course. (laughs) So one day, a man went to visit this Sufi master who was uh, teaching and seated by the side of a river um, and he paid his respects and bowed to the master and in, in the traditional um, fashion of certain cultures he brought a gift to the master and because he was a jewel merchant he brought these two enormous pearls to give to the Sufi master and he placed the pearls in, uh, in his hands kind of, in, or by his feet um, the master took, took, took them up and sort of held them, looked at them carelessly, and then one slipped out of his hand and rolled down the bank and right into the water. And the man who brought the gift was... These are huge, precious pearls. Did you see where it went? He started fishing around. Did you see? Where is it? And the the master took the other pearl and threw it and said, I think it went right there, plop. And the second pearl went in. That's exactly where it went. So to come to a sanctuary is like, here is the master sitting at the side of the Ganges, is coming to a place, whatever sanctuary serve you, where you're not in the thrall of getting, buying, selling, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, all of those kinds of things, that your heart can settle, your mind can clear, your eyes can open and say, well, what is it? that really matters to me in this life. Now, it used to be when I grew up as a young man in Massachusetts, one of the places I lived, we had the blue laws. Um, the blue laws were the, were the Sabbath laws where you couldn't do anything in Massachusetts um, in terms of commerce, let us say, on Sundays. And it was phenomenal. I mean, yeah, people resisted and so forth. But what it meant is people actually stopped. It was the Sabbath. Now, of course, you can do anything 24-7 anywhere, right? And it's a little bit crazy to have a culture that doesn't have a Sabbath. But what it means is that we have to make a Sabbath for ourselves. Sabbath, again, meaning that holy day, whether it's Friday or Saturday or Sunday or whatever day or time, it is in your own cycle and in your own life. There was a man who used to sit at the foot 
of the Buddha as he was teaching. He would sit there and he'd come day after day after day and follow him around. He was kind of a Buddha groupie or something like that. I'm sure there were in those days. And as he was following the Buddha, he would just sit and stare at him. And the Buddha was, as the stories are told, supposed to have been a very handsome prince um, and certainly quite charismatic. And he would just look at him and kind of do the mooning over the guru thing. Um, and, And finally, at some point when the Buddha felt it was right, he said, what are you doing coming day after day and sitting here and just looking at me? And the man said, well, I, I love to look at you. I love the Buddha. You represent awakening. You're so beautiful. And I'm so inspired. And the Buddha looked at him kindly and he said, you don't even see me. You don't see who I am. You just see the outer form. He said, when you see the truth of what I teach in yourself, when you see the Dharma, the the truth of the way things are in your own heart, then you will see me, then you will know who I am, then we will really be brothers. So what does it what does it take to allow us to see in that way, not from the outside, but to come back? One of the things that's terribly important is not to be too practical. To be too practical is the real madness. A um, couple of stories for you. Let's see. This is from Rachel Remen, who writes about a, a a doctor who came to work with her, who had trained on the uh, AIDS ward of San Francisco General Hospital in the early eighties, um, several years before the. <coughs> during the epidemic before all the protease inhibitors and the other drug therapies were developed. And almost all the patients who were admitted to his service died. Many of them were young men quite close to his own age, people whose lives mattered deeply to him. And after, he be- after a while, he became overwhelmed by a sense of futility. He felt that way for much of his residency. But it also turns out that David was trained as a Buddhist. And one of his practices has been to offer prayers for each of his patients. So when a patient dies, even now, he lights a candle on his altar at home and keeps it burning for 49 days, which is the Tibetan tradition. And for the whole time he was at San Francisco General Hospital, he prayed for each dying young man and lit a candle on his altar for them. And now, years later, he talks of this, and then he has a kind of smile that comes. He says, it's made me wonder. Perhaps the reason I was there was not what I thought. I'd expected to serve by curing and rescuing all these patients. But their problems prove resistant to everything I learned in modern medicine, and I felt useless. But maybe I was not meant to be there to cure people. Maybe I was there so that no one would die without someone to pray for them. Perhaps David had served his patients flawlessly. I remember on one of the retreats that I taught in Yucca Valley down in Joshua Tree, where we've taught retreats for 30 years, um, a woman died. 
And, you know, Buddhists talk about death. It's one of our things, right? So <laughs> you're born, you die, praise and blame, gain and loss, joy and sorrow, and take your seat in the midst of it all and learn to find a freedom in the midst of it. It's one thing to talk about it, right? Here we are talking about it. And it's another to be sitting next to somebody and then have them keel over. She had a stroke in the brainstem, a major stroke, um, and have them die. Um, and people said, what do we do? I said, well, we continue to sit. Um, and we did chanting, and we did prayers for her, beautiful, beautiful prayers. I mean, and they were so heartfelt, because when the person next to you dies, it's as if some part of you also dies. There's some way in which the gates between this world and the next world are open to you. And it's so mysterious. And... Yes, it's frightening and terrifying for certain people, but it's also extraordinary. And if you're with someone who dies consciously, um, to have the privilege of being with someone when they're at the end of life in a conscious way, and then they die, this great mystery happens. Because there they are, and then in absolute silence, like a, like a, a falling star that you see but don't hear, spirit disappears from their body and it's just a dead body. Um, It's one of these amazing mysteries and um, it happens to us all. That's what makes it really amazing. I mean, it's one thing for the person next to you to die, (laughs) right? But that's really the reminder. So there it happened. And we've been teaching about it. Well, what do we do? What we do is we sit in the presence of it. And we find our seat like the Buddha on the night of enlightenment that saw joy and sorrow and birth and death and gain and loss. And find the place of sanctuary, of trust in the heart that can be present for all things. In some way, People think that you meditate in order to get quiet and have nice experiences, and it's true. You can cleanse yourself and release things and open, and all of that's really good. But there's a deeper meaning for meditation. It's to find within ourselves the capacity to be present for the whole dance of life, everything that's given to us. And you have this capacity. It is your Buddha nature, your true nature to be aware and learn that you can know and honor the full range of your humanity. And humanity is this amazing mixture of unbearable beauty and profound sorrow. And if we look honestly at our life, it contains all of these. That you can know and honor what's true and that you can be free in the midst of it. So Zen Master Ryokan, who's the most beloved poet of Japan, he writes all these beautiful spring day, picking flowers with the children poems, but he also writes other kinds. He says, The vicissitudes of this world are like the movements of the clouds. Fifty years of life, nothing but one long dream. Sparse rain in my desolate hermitage at night. I clutch my robes and lean against the empty window. Crickets disturbed by my visit shriek, 
Looking up, I see the setting sun, unbearable loneliness. Wait a second, you're a Zen master, you're not supposed to be lonely, right? But he writes about the spring flowers in one poem, and then in the next, he writes unbearable loneliness. And what he's doing in his poetry is what we do when we take the seat in the inner garden. We bow to what comes, to all that comes. We stop the war against the way we think it's supposed to be and how our life should be and say, this is the way that it is. And I can awaken the great heart of compassion and open to things that are given to me in this life and use them to become a being of patience and love and wisdom and courage, all those beautiful things, by staying present for this dance. And it's the invitation of meditation. O nobly born, says the Buddha, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember this capacity to be present because it's a gift to your body and to your heart, to all that you care about. It's a gift to those who are around you. And it's a gift to the, to the world in which we live. You all know this poem from Wendell Berry. When despair grows in me and I wake in the middle of the night at the least sound in fear of what my life or my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds, and I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for the light, and for a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. One of my teachers said, you know, you don't have to teach people meditation much. He lived in this beautiful forest in the Malay Peninsula, Ajahn Buddhadasa. He says, just bring them out into the woods, bring them up into the mountains for long enough that they can let go of some of their sorrows and then let themselves feel that they're a part of the rhythm of life itself, of the natural rhythm of life. If you teach them anything, he said, teach them metta, Teach them loving-kindness and bring them out to the trees. That's probably enough. So there are all these outer forms of sanctuary. We go in the mountains, we go to a temple, we go on retreat. But it's not just the outer forms. How do we make our office, our place in the market, wherever we are, become the temple, become the sanctuary. And meditation begins by having our very own body and mind be the place of sanctuary, be the garden. As we sit, the point isn't to be someplace else. As I've said um, many times, and I really um, love this teaching that came through Alan Watts originally, he says, that meditation is unlike almost anything else that you do except making music. Because the point of making music isn't to get to the end of the piece of music. If that were so, 
then the fastest musicians would be the best, right? Okay, got through that piece. Now let's move on through the next one. Okay, finish them all. Great. The point in making music is actually to be in harmony with the music where it is. And the point of meditation is to find harmony with the way things are. To come to rest in what is called the reality of the present. Which is all we ever have. The future is a fantasy, right? It's not here. And the past is a memory. It's not here. All that we have is the eternal present. And people say, well, what if I'm in the present? I need a plan and I need to remember. You'll plan plenty. Don't worry about it. Really, you don't have to worry about losing that capacity. And you'll remember all that you need. You should be so lucky. But instead of living so many years ahead of each day, to sit and come back to the reality of the present. Now, that little guy that Matt Groening draws in his cartoons, that sort of little kind of elfin creature, I don't know quite what it is, but maybe somebody could tell me. Anyway, in that Life in Hell cartoon, there was one where he was sitting there in kind of a yoga posture with his hands meditative and says, there are about 12 little boxes, I am in the present, I am in the here and now. Here and now is the place to be. All that exists is the moment. The moment is eternal. All that is and all that will be is now, always now. And I rest in the timeless. Past and future are an illusion. With no past and future, I am complete. This is the moment of awakening. Little smile on his face. And then the second to the last frame shows a ding in the background. He says, dang, that microwave popcorn takes a long time. You know. So we have this kind of, because we have this dual nature, you know, there's one part of us that says, okay, eternity, living in the present, that sounds good, and let's see, how much longer do we have of this Dharma talk, and where am I going to go, and, you know, stop for a little snack on the way home, and so forth. And both of those are true. But what is really important more and more for us, is to learn to trust that we can live in the reality of the present, that there is a bodily sense that we can be here, be present, be kind, be awake, be free. Storm Jameson, novelist, writes, there is only one world, the world pressing against you at this minute. There's only one minute in which you can be alive the minute here and now. The only way to live is by accepting each minute as an unrepeatable miracle. And what finding sanctuary does is it lets us come back to trust more and more the reality of the present. So here a story, someone I write about in this book, Living in the present became essential for Margot after her husband Brian was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. It was an early diagnosis. After his tumor was removed, his doctors gave him a 50% chance of living for three years because pancreatic cancer, as you know, is a really dangerous diagnosis. Brian was an easygoing man with a history of meditation practice, a good support network, and it helped him maintain an attitude of balanced acceptance. Margot was having more trouble. 
She couldn't sleep. She worried all the time. She began to have panic attacks. Her distress alarmed everyone. So she came to a retreat. We began to work on, with her on this. And part of it was to tell the truth. Brian might well die. Death is natural. Many people have cancer and some will die this year and some will live years longer and then will die. And so will she. This is our human lot. And we sat with all her pain and fears of death and loneliness and abandonment and her regrets. And she just learned to breathe and hold everything that came in the space of awareness with compassion. At the same time, I invited Margot to practice living in the present. Practicing mindfulness as we've done this evening, breath and body, feelings and thoughts. She began to feel her body again and focus on the sensations. She could feel her tension, her fears, but she could also hear the screech of the scrub jay outside the window and see the slant of the morning light. And coming back into the present in her senses, she could see her worry and panic as the product of a fearful imagined stories, not the present reality. You know how Mark Twain put it. He said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. (laughs) That the mind produces all these, and some of them will happen. It's true. It's not that that won't happen. But we live so much ahead of ourselves. Margot learned to walk mindfully, to feel her steps on the earth, to feel her breath, to come back. And through all of Brian's treatment and hospital visits and the long struggle with cancer, she began to use mindfulness and compassion to learn to stay in the present. She said it was her only relief. And it is a relief. It takes a certain kind of trust to come into this sanctuary but it's the best trust there is and the most genuine trust. It's the trust that knows that we have the capacity to open to the play of life, which we do. Our Buddha nature, our true nature, whatever language you would use, you have within you the great heart of a Buddha. You have within you the capacity to touch this life with compassion and to be free in its midst, no matter what happens. And gradually, her heart became more a place of stillness, a place of sanctuary. Now, what's also true is that as we learn to sit with our fears and joys and longings and loves uh, with, you know, what Zorba called the whole catastrophe of our humanity, um, we begin to trust the very space of awareness, that the space of awareness itself like a mirror or like the sky, can allow clouds to come and go and storms. Or if you imagine a mirror, the mirror can know what's happening, but it's not tainted by it. And in the same way as we practice mindfulness and mindful awareness, tears will come, tension will come, worries, plans, anger, all of those things may arise at certain points. You can bow to them and say, yes, this too. And yet the awareness becomes the space of refuge. We can rest in the knowing and say, now this is anger, now this is joy. Now this is the openness of the body. Now this is whatever comes next. And we become, in our own body, a kind of temple. 
We become the inner garden. And as we do, we then are able to offer it to others. A friend of mine who worked for uh, quite a while doing hospice work, she was trained in Zen Center Hospice, this very wonderful training that lots of people from Spirit Rock have gone through. Anyway, she was um, doing some of her hospice work at one of the hospitals in the city, and the man that she was assigned to um, work with um, had been sent over from prison, and he was dying of some combination of AIDS and some other adventitious diseases. Um, And he wasn't all that old, but maybe in his 40s, he was wearing the kind of orange jumpsuit, prison garb, and he was chained, you know, handcuffed to the bed. Um, And she, my friend, talked to him a lot. Did he have any family? Did he you know, have anyone who visited him? And he said, oh, I'm so ashamed. He said, "Um, I haven't seen my mother for years. I don't want her to see me in prison. I don't want her to see me in these clothes, you know. But my friend, the woman who was working there, as she listened, she could feel somehow that it was really important for him. He was so lonely and alone that he see her again. And so after a long conversation, she persuaded him to call his mother who was pretty old, and several days later she arrived, frail and just about 80 years old, and with a grief-stricken expression. He was afraid he would just break her heart. And when Bill's mother entered the room, she saw her son, who hadn't spoken to her for years, in this prison garb, handcuffed to the bed. The hospice person was afraid that this dignified, stern mother would look at her son with judgment and disappointment. But instead she just stood there with a deep stillness and they looked each other all over and their eyes locked and the circumstance and the suffering and the roles and the costumes, everything dropped away. Philippa, my friend, said that Bill's mother gazed at her son like a newborn child, like a saint witnessing a miracle with the heart of all mothers. And Bill and his mother just sat together. They saw their their beauty, forgiving, eternal. For an hour and a half, they held hands. They didn't need to say very much. And when his mother left, Bill said, all right, now I know I can die in peace. When we touch in our own hearts, the place of sanctuary. It gives us the courage and the trust and the understanding that we can be present for the humanity of others, for their tears and their difficulty and their beauty and their longings and their struggles. It's really what we can offer each other. And in it, we offer forgiveness because we're all in it together, really, you know. In the Buddhist monasteries, we would meet every two weeks, every new moon and full moon, um, and come together for a, a ritual of confession where we would talk about anything that we'd done that broke our vows or the precepts that we were supposed to be keeping. And then we would bow to each other and forgive one another and talk about how we would start again. 
There was in New York a guy, and I think he was sort of a performance artist. He called himself Mr. Apology. And he put a line uh, open back in the old days. It was a 800 free number. And put advertisements in the paper. Said, Mr. Apology will take your apologies. Apologize and you will be forgiven. <laughs> and what happened is that he got floods of calls. You know, even though it was only a machine often taking the recording, people who had done horrible things and small things and large things, he started to get hours and hours of people just asking for apology. Of course, in every recording had at the end its little pre-recorded apology. It doesn't take a lot somehow. Even at a, as a kind of art project, at a mechanical distance, it had some meaning. I mean, he didn't know what to do with some of the criminal things that he heard. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry that, you know, we uh, put a few people in the East River or whatever. Can I please (laughs) have forgiveness for this or whatever it was? But, and it was true, there's a long article in the New York Times about this guy. Um, But even in this kind of strange, funny, mechanical way, it meant something. And it means so much more when we find the sanctuary of love, rest in ourselves, and then can bless those who come to see us. They say that at death, there is a great judge, Lord Yama in the Buddhist uh, psychology, or uh, in the Egyptian mythology, it's Mat, who weighs your soul against a feather. Some of you probably know that. But in fact, when you understand and when you read more deeply in Um, Buddhist psychology the judge is yourself in the end because there's something in the heart that knows what needs to be forgiven there's something in the heart that knows what it means to come to peace with our past and a true sanctuary is a place of forgiveness not of judgment forgiveness for everything both forgiveness and a deep kind of truthfulness This is from Zen Master Suzuki Roshi. And I remember a time when my daughter was very young and she got really sick and they didn't know what it was and they were doing biopsies and we were worried that it was a childhood cancer. They weren't sure. And I would try to sleep at night and first all the fears would come and I started to pray to like that altar that I described, every everything that I'd ever heard of and, you know particularly all the mothers that I'd studied with, uh, Deepama, my teacher in India, his grandmother who was so wonderful and so forth. But then it wasn't just prayers, then I would sit. And I would sit and do metta for my daughter and myself and my, my wife. Suppose, says Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, that your children are suffering perhaps from a hopeless disease, You do not know what to do. You cannot lie in bed. Normally, the most comfortable place for you would be a warm, comfortable bed. But now, because of your mental agony, you cannot rest. You might walk up and down, in and out, but this doesn't help. Actually, the best way to relieve your suffering is to sit in meditation, even in such a completely confused state of mind. If you have no experience of sitting with this kind of difficult situation, you are not yet a truly well-trained Zen student. For no other activity will appease your suffering. In other positions, you have no power to accept your difficulties, 
But when you sit in meditation, the posture you've acquired from long, hard practice, your body and mind have the power to accept things as they are, both agreeable and disagreeable. In continuous practice, under a succession of agreeable and disagreeable situations, you will realize the marrow of Zen, of meditation, and acquire its true strength. So in some way, meditation is an invitation to quiet the mind, reconnect with the body, with the senses, with this mysterious and beautiful world. It's an invitation to open the heart. And in another way, it is most profoundly an invitation to find the freedom that is your birthright, the freedom that is always here as human beings, to open to this dance of life that we are incarnated into, to bow to it and say, yes, this too, and to take our seat in the midst of it. And from this place of inner freedom, the space of awareness and great compassion, then we can respond and act and care, but not in a way that adds to the war, that adds to the suffering of the world. We can respond and act from the place of the bodhisattva, from the wise and skillful heart. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person stayed calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. A poem for you. I used to wait for a sign, she said, before I did anything. Then one night I had a dream and an angel in black tights came to me and said, you can start any time now. (laughs) And then I asked, is this a sign? And the angel started laughing, this beautiful laugh, and I woke up smiling. And now I think the whole world is filled with signs. But if there's no laughter, I know they're not for me. (laughs) For me, it's been a privilege to come and lead this class for the last quarter of a century. Kind of amazing. Um, Because I need it, you know. I'm not just uh, sitting up here giving you, you know, Buddhist advice or something like that. Um, It's really part of my own practice. Even though I'm tired tonight or whatever, all the different cycles I go through in the course of weeks and months of doing this, like you, um, I get to come and sit with you, which is beautiful, center myself. And then I get to speak about the things that I need to hear, because I'm really talking to myself, you know. (laughs) It's true, you know, and um, I'll go home, and if I haven't given myself a good enough talk and 
get into difficulty, then my daughter will say, Dad, I think it's time for you to go and meditate for a while, you know, chill, Dad, or whatever. Um, So it's always nice to have people around you that remind you about the sanctuary. Take the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden. You can always go there. And as you sit, as we end tonight, let yourself feel what in the garden wants to be tended to. Because sometimes you get quiet and what you start to notice is the unfinished business of the heart, the tears that haven't been shed, that just need your tender attention or the longing or excitement or hopes that you have that want you to pay attention and honor them. Or just the tiredness of your body saying, hey, you've been running me around. Gee, it's so nice to stop. Thank you. Sleepiness, it's called the poor man's nirvana. good. (laughs) Just to listen. And sense that there is this garden, this refuge, this sanctuary to be found within your own heart and mind. Sense the great heart of compassion that can open within you and the space of awareness. Trust it. Rest in it. It is your home. So one small announcement and then a, uh, a one-word chant before we go. The announcement is that here in Woodacre, we have our 4th of July Woodacre Parade for those who are around, but on July 5th, um, one of the community members is doing a big 
benefit for relief in Burma. Um, And anyone who's interested, there'll be an outdoor jazz concert and and party. You can click on insightsangha.org and they'll get the information. And so just one more minute or so. Um, In the Buddhist tradition, there's a text called the Sutra of Complete and Perfect Wisdom in 80,000 Verses that's summed up in shorter versions of 8,000 and then 880 verses. And for our sake tonight, it's also summed up in this one syllable, the seed syllable, which is considered in Sanskrit to be the first sound and the last sound in life. But most importantly, it's the seed syllable of letting go or opening, opening to the dance of life. It's a seed syllable, ah. So what I'd like us to do is to sing, ah. And as you do, let go of whatever arises that wants to be let go of and let yourself rest in the sound of ah and in the space that opens from it. Ah, add harmony, ah, the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge so the doorway to the garden can swing open easily. You can always go there. Have a blessed week ahead. Thank you for your generosity, your kind attention. See you again. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.